Welcome to Fifth Wall's Building to Zero podcast. The real estate industry is the world's single largest contributor to climate change. At Fifth Wall, we're on a mission to help the industry eradicate its carbon emissions and build to zero. I'm your host, Brendan Wallace. In today's episode of Building to Zero, I am joined by Parag Khanna, managing partner of FutureMap. We discuss how climate change will lead to a major demographic reshuffling. Parag explains how the shift towards a more nomadic future will have tremendous implications for the real estate industry. Enjoy the conversation. Parag, well, thank you so much for joining. Where are you coming in from? Great to see you, Brennan. I am in Singapore, where it's, uh, it's late in the evening, you know, but I'm used to this. Nice. Can we just start with, you know, you and your background and kind of the, the arc of your career? Uh, sure. So I'm Parag Khanna, founder and managing partner of FutureMap. We are a data-driven scenario building advisory firm, headquartered here in Singapore, but have people everywhere. Half our work is government, half is corporate. We do a lot of long-term strategic planning, could be economic master planning, investment promotions, so government strategy and reform. But with corporates, market entry, again, scenarios, research, looking at regulations, but also, again, long-term you know, innovation strategy. So we do a lot of that. Um, I'm an academic. I'm a traveler. You know, started out as a backpacker, now more of a business traveler, but have a lot of adventures under my belt across more than 150 countries. Uh, tragic as it is, I served in Iraq and Afghanistan, you know, uh, working with special operations forces. So it was a real highlight for me, you know, sort of as, a, as an honor, as an experience. But obviously these days I'm, you know, looking back at it, um, you know, with, with mixed emotions. But uh, I'm a non-teaching uh, academic, you know, written a lot of books on globalization and geopolitics. There's one thread in all of my work, it is geography. And my new book that's just coming out is called Move. And it's really about the future of human geography, uh, which is literally the distribution of the human species around the world. And it's something that we take for granted too much and don't understand just how much more mobile we are going to be in the future. And what, you know, before going into, um, you know, the, the specifics of your academic interest and your professional interest in, in geography and in its intersections with climate, just what was the genesis of that, that passion for, for geography and, and for climate and kind of the intersections between the two? Oh, great question. So for me, actually, it kind of starts like 32 years ago, because that was when the Berlin Wall fell down. So uh, like you, I grew up in the tri-state area. So we, you know, turn on the television, November 9th, 1989, the Berlin Wall fell. I was 12 years old. And as it happens, my dad had some experience in Germany in the 60s as a, as a business trainee coming out of India. You know, the first country he went to outside of India in his life was actually Germany of all places. So it's kind of in our family. And uh, he was like, and he had been to Berlin, East and West Berlin, when the wall was up. So we took an early Christmas holiday that year and, uh, you know, family got on a plane, flew to Frankfurt, drove to Berlin. I sat on top of the Berlin Wall. I even hacked away at the Berlin Wall myself and brought back little Ziploc bags of wall pieces to hand out to the eighth grade. So my big geopolitical awakening was then, and I've never looked back. I mean, literally everything I've done in my life in some way derives from that moment when I was 12 years old. So I've, I've had a pretty straight up path. 
the climate angle, so that, that's the geopolitics, being a geopolitical junkie, traveling, writing my books, working with governments, you know, winding up in places like Libya and Venezuela and Uzbekistan and uh, Mongolia, which is places where I've spent a lot of time, all of them, all kind of comes from that. And obviously military service uh, as well. The climate angle is obviously more subtle and a, a slow fuse in the same way that it is uh, for all of us, because I've written about infrastructure and political geography of borders. But I wanted to, in any case, do a book about human geography that kind of coincides with two big trends. The first is actually just demographic. The fact that the world population is actually reaching a plateau in the next 10 to 15 years. So you and I are going to live to see this moment where on the front page of every newspaper in the world, it says world population peaks begins to decline from here. Right. And that number, I predict, is going to be less than nine billion people, which, as you remember, you know, back in the 90s, 2000s, people said, oh, my God, a Malthusian crisis, the world could have 15 billion people the human species will be lucky to get to 9 billion people, which is still a lot, but it's not as much. And uh, so the demographic plateau is going to have a big impact on, on economics and you know where people go in order to be in growing economies. The winners and losers of the future societies will be those that have people, obviously, as opposed to those that are aging and dying. But where are you going to go? Well, climate is going to be a huge factor in that. And so I be began to look kind of at every region of the world at the microclimates in a way, the livable and the unlivable places and factor that in to the forecast around where people will live in the year 2030, 2040, and 2050. So Brendan, I mean, to put it simply, I set out to, to answer this one question, where will you live in the year 2050? And to answer that question, you can't not take into account climate change, demographics, economics, political upheaval, labor automation, and all of these other things. So I had to take a, re a literally a complexity-based approach. And then I thought, oh, well, the simple answer is we're all going to move to Canada or to Sweden, you know, or Japan or whatever. And even that's not so simple because in a complex system, you have these uh, unpredictable, you know, sort of chain reactions and effects. So sure, if everyone moves to Canada, guess what? Canada is no longer Canada. It's no longer that placid, livable, happy place. A lot of things could go south. Same thing ha would happen if, uh, I mean, in Sweden, where you get a whopping 50,000 refugees, governments topple over that issue. Imagine if suddenly 5 million people show up. Right. So you will have people moving more and more. And so the conclusion I came to basically is that we are going to become a nomadic species again. And political unrest, everything from political unrest to climate change is going to make us more nomadic. And we need to get used to a nomadic future with a smaller world population. So obviously that has enormous implications for everything from economics, real estate, you know, and, and so forth. And so, you know, as you think about that, that core question, like where will people live in, in 2050? And you, you, you mentioned this concept of, of uh, kind of a, a complexity approach to it, because it's this multivariable equation where a lot of the variables intersect with one another in, in ways that are frankly, probably hard to, to model out. But what are the major drivers of that? And you mentioned yeah. a couple, there's geopolitics, right? There, there's kind of um, broadly economic drivers and intersections there obviously with technology and, and natural resources. Um, but then there's, there's obviously climate. What, what are the non-intuitive ones that, that also collide with that output? It's a, it's a great question. So let me get the obvious ones out of the way. We have been a nomadic species for 100,000 years, minus the last four or 5,000 years, right? So it is actually in our nature to move. Climate has historically been a huge driver. The climate only stabilized after the last ice age. So as you know, most of the human population lives in a certain 
certain latitudinal band, which scientists call the climate niche. And that niche is now shifting. So my argument is we will shift too. But the, the, you take the 20th century as a barometer, because that was the century of, you know, the, the obviously highest number of total migrants, given the expanding world population, right? Over the course of the 20th century, the world population quadrupled in size, right? To about the 8 billion people that we are now. But we are fundamentally economic migrants, right? If you wanted to characterize, you know, we, we are, we, we flee from insecurity. So that also explains a lot of 20th century migrations, World War II, and, you know, partition of India and Pakistan and civil wars around the world. So that, but we're obviously just fundamentally seeking relative gains economically. So even people who are middle class or upper middle class, only beyond a very high income level are people not willing to move, right? So just about everyone is a potential economic migrant. It is just, again, part of who we are. Let's bring in some of the you know, surprising one, sort of technology, right? So on the one hand, where you have um, labor automation, right? Or, you know, or a combination of labor automation and globalization that explains the Rust Belt exodus, right? So people moving from South to North, and that's still happening across the United States. The most recent census just came out and, um, you know, Michigan is still losing people, right? By, by environmental logic, it should be gaining people, but that isn't priced in yet. It's still losing people to low tax states and sunny states and so forth. But then you've got remote work, right? Which actually liberates people. So during the pandemic, the only people who were really moving were people who actually liberated because of remote work and said, well, you know, see you later, San Francisco, I'm moving to Costa Rica, I'm moving to Bali, whatever the case may be, or Athens and that kind of thing. Also, though, the fact is that this is a huge demographic thing, another surprise. So what's very different between the, the sort of, you know, um, the baby boomer generation, which had, you know, on average, a higher fertility rate than we see today, and today's Gen X and millennials, is that especially millennials, millennials are not having any kids. So whereas in the past, you would say, okay, well, eventually, once people have children and settle down, you know, they're going to want to buy an asset, have a home, that's going to be their equity. And they, they, they prefer stability in all aspects of life. And they, they sell out, you know, as well, politically, and that kind of thing. Well, that's not going to happen anymore, because you're dealing with 4 billion young people who don't have any children, right, who literally aren't having children. So it's a whole different calculation. This is not, in other words, 1968. So the revolutionary social undercurrents of the 60s eventually gave way to sedentary, you know, stasis, which is why today's Gen X, is why today's uh, millennials blame Gen Xers for selling out, right, and not sticking to the environmental movement and, you know, other, you know, social democracy and other kinds of things. But today's young people could be revolutionaries for decades to come because they don't have children, right? They and, and their rate of home ownership is lower. So the home equity and the children, the two forces that generally conspire psychologically to make people sedentary and docile don't really work in the 21st century, right? So I talk in the book about this sort of global underclass revolt that has been brewing since the anti-globalization movement, Occupy Wall Street, the Arab Spring, and so forth, political polarization. is. There's no particular reason for that to go away if people don't have one fixed asset or home that they seek to secure, and that they don't have children who are their number one priority they focus on. Instead, you could have a mobile population of young revolutionaries, right? Or young digital nomads, right? You know, if we were to upskill everyone and give everyone a job coding, then obviously, you could, and you know, have a universal basic income, then it doesn't have to be a bad story. On balance, though, the point is technology cuts both ways in this um, argument. You know, generally speaking, though, it becomes yet another force that drives people to move away. 
And people say, oh, well, what if there is, you know, uh, technological automation and, you know, everyone can live a comfortable life and that sort of thing. Well, that there are very few countries. You and I could count it on, you know, just a couple of fingers, places that are actually uh, kind of, you know, engaging in large scale fiscal redistribution, such that even if you're made redundant, you can just stay put and relax and collect, you know, uh, an early pension and just play video games. Very few places are like that. So in fact, you will have to move, right? And and, and anyway, what's funny thing is when I was researching it's like every little argument every anecdote every trend leads to more migration like there's yeah, no that's, that's, that's scenario at all where people are not moving and the punchline is like you know robin chase from zipcar that famous line like you know my parents had one job over the course of their careers and you know my in my generation of six jobs at the same time so similarly it's like people tended to move maybe once in their life or twice like i think that people will move six or seven times over the course of their lives and so understand where people are going to be is obviously so fundamental to thinking about our economic strategy and planning and where the the geography of our economy and of course the geography of real estate. If you don't know where people are, how are you going to know where to build? And, And it's interesting because it feels like what you're saying, the synthesis of it is that the table is set, the stage is set for uh, people to move up more, faster, more frequently, and in a more kind of, in a way where they don't grow roots. And so as a result, any of the forces that might have otherwise, you know, driven people to, or kind of reshuffled the deck demographically or, or geographically are just kind of put on steroids uh, right now. And, and it sounds like also one of the big intersecting variables is how imminent the negative consequences of climate change are and how that kind of expedites that process. Absolutely. Can you talk about that? Like you mentioned this this concept previously of there being this kind of uh, latitudinal sweet spot where right. people kind of tend to, to, to live right across, you know, throughout the world. To the extent that changes by virtue of climate and weather, where do people go at a macro level? And then maybe can you zoom in to give us some of the just interesting micro uh, conclusions that come from that? Absolutely. You know, that that's a big part of the book. And, you know, when you look at the maps, it is fairly clear that the climate niche is, you know, gradually shifting northward, which is, again, just to emphasize, you know, what you and I know, but other people may have a delayed reaction to. This is not something that has a start date of 2028 or something like this has already been going on, right? The Western United States is already in a multi-decade mega drought. It's not a prediction. It's already happening. Right. Um, and that's the same, you know, all over the world. Large parts of the Middle East are unlivable. Much of South Asia is becoming unlivable. The number of zero day events that are happening in um, in India and Brazil and uh, African countries, you know, is, are, are more frequent. So there will have to be, despite the sovereign borders that restrain us, there will inevitably be more migration. So I look around the world and I look at the places people will be leaving and the places that will be absorbing people. Some are off the beaten track. I have a whole chapter about Kazakhstan. I talk a lot about Japan. I look at, you know, obviously Northern Europe. I look at the Alpine region, particularly Northern Italy, Um, you know, countries that have the fresh water supply and the engineering capability to harness fresh water for irrigation, despite climate volatility, and that have the capacity to harness more people because they have very few people and are depopulating, which is certainly the case with Italy. And there are places in the world that have fast growing populations, not least because they are climate 
climate propitious, and they have good governance and economic management. So Kazakhstan's population is growing. Canada's population is growing. Um, England's population. So if you look at British immigration policy, it's as if Brexit never happened. It's more liberal today in 2021 than it was in, uh, you know, say 2015, uh, because they realized that they were hemorrhaging talent and capital and industry uh, as a result of Brexit. So now Boris Johnson has come in despite championing Brexit. And he basically is, you know, rewritten the rules and said, basically, if you have a pulse and a degree, we'll let you in. Whereas before you had to demonstrate you had a job offer and pay an onerous security bond. So I believe that one way or the other, every country in the world is going to come around to realizing that they need people to, in this war for talent. And particularly the countries that are climate oasis, that are climate propitious, are simultaneously the ones that are depopulating. So we have the most perverse and, and quite frankly, immoral, uh, you know, sort of hypocritical uh, discrepancy in the world today. You have, you know, all the young people trapped in unlivable countries and all the places that are turning green and becoming more livable because of climate change are depopulating because they're aging and people are dying. And we ultimately have to correct that mismatch. Now, you asked the right question, though, which is how does this play out on like a granular kind of level? And we will inevitably, no matter what the current year by year USPS data on, you know, uh, relocation shows us people will move north, right? People will move to Canada, they'll move to the Great Lakes region, there's a heroic, you know, sort of uh, a set of efforts underway in the Great Lakes region to prepare for inward climate migrants, but to do so in a sustainable fashion. And it's something that I profile in the book. And I think it's very important. It's a coalition of civic actors and chambers of commerce and mayors and this kind of thing. Um, so that's, you know, in terms of America, there's no question. Now, again, at a retail level, you see it. More people are moving to Boise, Idaho, and, you know, uh, places like this, Vermont and New Hampshire. Again, confluence of trends, not just climate. It could be in Vermont, it's like, you know, we'll pay you $10,000, right, to come and live there and be a remote worker because we want to see investment in the state. We're less interested in tax than in, than in investment, which is actually the right attitude for a state or for a country. So, um, and But at the same time, it doesn't hurt that it's a climate resilient geography in which agricultural collectives and communities are starting to thrive. Let's remember that now Russia and Canada have joined the ranks of some of the largest agricultural producers in the entire world. So again, a part of the mismatch is like, how many of our 8 billion people live north of 60 or 70 degrees latitude, 60 degrees latitude, it's like, you know, 10 million people, right? The other 8 billion people don't live in those latitudes. So we are going to have, you know, a uh, a great shift. Some of it, in some parts of the world, it'll be sudden. In some places, it'll be more gradual. In a place like America, where it's market-driven fundamentally, you know, it's going to be more at a retail level. But you can see what is happening in terms of FEMA policy, uh, by which they're now saying, look, we're just not going to allow uh, resettlement in threatened areas, right? The Carolinas, coastal areas where people have been watching. That's not a good use of taxpayer money. I think you and I might agree. Whereas we're going to, you know, try and get you a slightly larger subsidy and, you know, pay out to go and move somewhere else, right? In a, in a kind of designated safe zone. You know, the places that I call climate oases uh, in the book. And, and when you think about, you know, the, the climate oases and the parts of the world in particular, the, the regions and cities that are most negatively impacted by climate change and, you know, really awful climate, you know, kind of mega events. 
net of all of that, if you were to think about that, there's going to be this, this geographic and demographic reshuffling of the deck, and it's probably going to happen on an expedited scale versus all of human history. What are some of, at a very micro level, the winners and losers? Because I imagine this will, of course, create winners and losers, but versus where we are today, you know, 2021, where people live today, where they thrive today, where, you know, economic activity flourishes. Right. In 2050, what is, where is the most daylight between where we are today and what 2050 will look like on the negative side? Maybe we can start there. Well, on the downside, I mean, obviously, I think the models are fairly clear around what uh, temperature rise is going to do through the you know intermediate second order effects to uh, coastal areas, right? Whether it's Florida or you know or elsewhere. And don't forget, it's not really just sea level rise. It's just the tropical storms, the typhoons, right? You know, co Texas is not as affected by sea level rise, but if you think about the frequency of the um, of the inclement weather events and the flooding in places like uh, you know uh, Houston and so forth, that's that's itself really bad, and that has obviously a very negative impact on property values. And one of the things that I've looked at is you know how quickly or not do geographies recover in terms of their asset value in their in their real estate markets after um, you know, these, these inclement events. And the answer is they're not they're not particularly resilient. Now, there are anomalies to that, like Miami, Florida, right, where the right signals on tax policy and, uh, you know, attracting new businesses, investment, um, you know, can actually increase the population despite the long-term outlook of a place. You have to also bring in the technology factor, right? Places where geoengineering or coastal sea barriers may actually stave off, right, rising seas for long enough that in the investment horizon, people say, you know what, I'm going to take that risk, I'm going to take that trade, and I'm going to go and, and live there. But overall, places that are inland, places that are higher elevation, places that, uh, you know, obviously have clean air, that are proximate to freshwater supply, proximate to agriculture, um, and that are affordable are the places that if you filter for all of those factors by if, if a, a sort of holistically rational person who's not thinking only about climate or only about affordability or only about air quality, but all of those things that, you know, we should think in that way, those are the geographies that people ought to gravitate toward. And again, we have a lot of those places in America. It's just that they haven't, you know, branded themselves um, that well yet. And, and, you know, again, are by, you know, sort of rightly are, are waiting, you know, kind of, kind of, kind of incrementally, uh, as it were, you know, to, to absorb greater populations. I mean, I'll tell you an anecdote, my, you know, I grew up in, in New York, not far from you in upstate New York. Um, and, uh, you know, because the American family size has been shrinking. It was difficult for my parents to actually sell their home in, in northern Westchester because families today didn't have, you know, don't have as many kids and the job market in Manhattan is less secure to be a commuter and they have a fairly large house with a pool and a couple acres of land. No one wanted it. But along came this thing called COVID-19 and suddenly people said, oh, I'm going to move to the suburbs and do remote work. And, you know, if, if they had they held on to their house for another six or seven months, if they'd known COVID was coming in, that remote work would suddenly become a thing. They would have actually, you know, sold their house at a 50% markup. Instead, they actually took a 30% haircut uh, selling before the pandemic. So there, it just, that, that story reminds you that there's a lot of factors driving things. But if you want to think from a climate point of view, the way we should think, because ultimately, if you're buying an asset, investing for the long term, 
then you do need to be thinking out to 2040 and 2050. Um, then you got to take climate into account. And quite frankly, the models are pretty, I don't want to say conclusive, but we're getting better and better at identifying climate, you know, sort of clusters and zones and microclimates and looking at how a wide range of variables and risk factors, you know, shape them. And it's not only latitude, right? Because it's also altitude and it's, you know, again, proximity to other resources. So we have hundreds, of course, of microclimates in America. But the truth is that that we do know fairly accurately, um, even though things are evolving and moving, right, taking that into account. But, you know, for a five to 10 year horizon, let's say, you know, we, we know pretty well which ones are the propitious ones and they're not heavily populated right now. And it sounds like there are these kind of plating variables of, you know, the interstate tax policy that kind of drive behavior in, in sometimes just unfavorable or inauspicious ways that relates to, to climate. But, you know, when you look at a macro level, assuming that, that what you're saying is right, which I believe, which is that the secular trend is inexorable, right? That, that, that basically the, the, the niche where humans should live is inexorable. We know that. There almost seems to be a clear ethical imperative to want people to be in places that are safer, right? That will lead to higher qualities, uh, higher qualities of life and, you know, just greater longevity because they're less imperiled right. by these, you know, climate events. But yet it sounds like that's not happening. And one of the questions I have then is what are the levers that can be turned to influence that? And I was kind of trying to think of a few of them. One is we just rely on the rationality of, of the consumer, right? To make a decision around where they should live that, you know, least puts them at risk or their home or their property or their lifestyle or their families at risk. Um, and it sounds like um, we can't reliably depend on the individual to do that. The, the second would be fiscal policy, right? Which is we simply alter the incentives within countries or among countries such that it leads to the outcome simply by virtue of economics. It's just the, the, the invisible hand of Adam Smith kind of like sweeps people into, into the, the geographies we view as, as more favorable. And, and the last would be capital markets. Um, and the reason I mention that is because obviously so many people listen from the real estate industry. The real estate industry is fundamentally a capital markets driven business. And, you know, real estate is really a sociology business. You're just predicting, you're, you're kind of predicting the economy happening in physical space. And by virtue of it happening in physical space, it happens in certain geographies, it happens in certain micro areas, and there's certain use cases that are more or less productive. And we can change interest rates right on those assets, right? The availability of debt, which largely finances the real estate industry. Which of those levers between the individual fiscal policy and mm -hmm. capital markets seems the best lever to turn to drive the outcomes we want? So if we're talking about within a single country, all three are already playing a significant role, obviously, because now we have the fiduciary pressures and the ESG pressures uh, to start to pull back from risky geographies of investment, insurance companies are adjusting premiums you know, calibrating them depending on the risk of the geography. It's definitely something I've been involved in. And then, of course, ideally using that nudge, right, to get you know, their clients, customers to look in more, more strategic areas or more propitious areas. The real estate industry, it tends to be following the people rather than building ahead of demand. So there's a big difference between just kind of laissez-faire economics and supply-led growth. I'm an advocate, I've seen it work in so many other countries of supply-led growth, where you say, look, 
we know where people need to be, where they're going to want to be, and where housing needs to be sufficient, where we want to have the sort of ecosystem or coexistence of industrial assets and stock of available, um, uh, you know, sort of, you know, real estate and so forth. And that, that's the China story. It's the story of the Gulf countries as well. It, it's, you know, if you're not an economist, the simple way to put it is if you build it, they will come, right? The, the, the field of dreams approach to, uh, to thinking about how to recirculate the population in a, in a sensible way. In the name of preservation, by the way, self-preservation and maximizing human flourishing, survivability, and quite frankly, productivity, right? All of those things would benefit by doing this, you know, domestically or internationally, but focusing just on domestic. So we've covered that lever. Again, fiscal policy is moving in this direction because we are starting to say, okay, wait a minute, if we need to sunset polluting industries and we need to, um, you know, focus on subsidizing renewable energy and raising the cost of hydrocarbons, well, that means means that people will actually gravitate towards places where they can have that off-grid, you know, circular kind of life. Um, and potentially, again, and then connecting to the retail level, my family lives in California now, they're like, you know, yet another PG&E outage, but we've got our solar you know, sort of assets, but we're not permitted to use it when it's not when the grid feedback isn't working. So we've got our power out. And even though we could use it and PG&E has cut us off and there's a heat wave and forest fires that it, enough is enough at some level. And people say, look, I'm out of here. I'm moving to Idaho. So these those levers also work together. And I, because you use the word ethics, you know, I, I actually do want to double down on this point, because as much as there are aspects of the real estate industry that are very short term, right? you know, buy, build, sell, right? The kind of thing, you know, very, very short cycles, but kind of like the travel industry and the hospitality industry, which accounts for, you know, 10, 12% of global GDP. There's something very fundamental if we stop and think about real estate, right? I mean, this is our, this is, this is, um, you know, our, these are our habitats, right? You know, it's, it's a, it's actually an ethical responsibility for the sheltering of mankind, you know, sort of most broadly conceived, not to mention building the professional working environment that we all, um, you know, thrive in. So thinking short term is, you know, fine, it's necessary, but it's not enough. And so this is actually one of the industries that should step, step, step back and think ethically about what is going on. And that, that brings in the question of borders, because what you have ethically sort of, you know, or, or called for, and what I have a long chapter of the book on, you know, sort of literally as a political philosopher, I've written like kind of, you know, how we need to think about this, because actually even enlightenment philosophy says almost nothing about migration, right? Because at the time when, uh, you know, English intellectuals were writing in the in the 18th century, they didn't really foresee mass migration. And therefore, it wasn't part of their ethical sort of framework. Um, you know, actually, migrants were referred to just as guests and travelers. Like, this is a very quaint era in which people philosophized about. But I'm actually talking about mass migrations on the scale of hundreds of millions, if not billions of people. And so it's not only an ethical obligation, but a strategic opportunity for the real estate industry to say, to say wait a minute, can we forecast the future geography? of demand and the propitious geographies? Should we not think about what kinds of assets are going to be needed in those places for large-scale human habitation and settlement? Is there a way to build those sustainably so that we're not uh, trampling upon the remaining uh, livable geographies on this world, having destroyed so many of the rest of them? And of course, that's actually a really enormous 
endless business opportunity, but and it, it's almost the embodiment of, you know, do good and do it well, but not just as a cliche. It's like, because actually our fate as a civilization kind of depends on it. So I would like to see this kind of, you know, call to arms uh, in the industry and take up the ethical challenge. Because I'll tell you what, it's not going to happen at the international domain. United Nations is not going to get this right, right? This is done through supply chains. This is done through industries. This is done country by country or at best among a couple of countries in pairs. The final word on this, let's remember that the one thing left in national sovereignty, right? Because you don't control your interest rates anymore. You barely control your own laws. Everything is prescribed by the European Union and cross-border agreements and regulations. The one thing left that every government in the world can still put its foot down and say, I have sovereign writ. It's who comes in and who comes out, right? Controlling the movement of people. But like I said at the beginning, we have a finite stock of people in the world. So the one thing that you want to be able to predict as a global real estate industry is where are the people going to be? Which countries are going to let them in? Which places are people even going to want to go to? Are they friendly countries? Are they liberal in their culture? Are they accommodating? Are they tolerant and embracing diversity? Do they have a good business model? Are they diversified economies? These are not abstract questions, Brendan. Like, you know, I've been to so many places. I mean, this is fundamentally the job of real estate is what I was saying. The the real estate industry is in the business of predicting where human activity, human commercial activity, and will take place and where people ultimately want to be. And because as you said, the real estate industry is compelled to think in, you know, multi-year time horizons, really like decades, because if you don't, your assets start to get impaired, right? In the near term, because of that, you would think that the real estate industry would be functioning as somewhat of an ethicist slash sociologist slash climatologist slash kind of, you know, geopolitical strategist in the sense that they are, they have to and they must and they have an imperative to appropriately predict where human activity, where human commerce, where human flourishing will take place 10, 20, 30 years out. And I want to be very encouraging because amongst industries, there has been in real estate a willingness and an openness for this conversation, right? So this is definitely the stuff that I'm working on and I get to work with, you know, kind of cutting edge people in the in the real estate space, get to talk to people like yourselves at Fifth Wall um, who are actually thinking about this. And guess what? Other industries are not necessarily as interested as you are. So I want to give a lot of credit to the industry to being open to it, but does it have the toolkit that it needs to actually make those forecasts accurately or is it, you know, by necessity, also from a business standpoint, still spending more time reacting? And the difference between, you know, the, the reactive time horizon versus the strategic, uh, you know, sort of uh, forecasting time horizon are really, you know, it's a matter of, of, of decades. But if I tell you, you know, and your listeners and the broader community that you that the toolkit exists to do a much better job of that planning, I want to see, you know, the evidence that that you know, that you will embrace it because that toolkit does exist. And again, it's a great business opportunity and it actually becomes an ethical necessity because governments are still fighting the last fire and putting out fires and not focused on this as much as business can be and should be. And so I obviously want to ask the question, which is such a clear prompt to a lot of the commercial real estate listeners that listen to, you know, um, this show, which is if you are the CEO of a real estate company, or if you're, you know, a board director of a real estate company, 
company. What are the concrete action items that you should be doing internally today? And what are the resources you should be mobilizing and franchising today to drive business decision-making that you're not seeing enough of, that you would advise them to do more of? What should they be doing that they're not doing today? So one is looking at, you know, again, because they have to think about their decisions in the context of what's going to be profitable, right? So looking at the arbitrage between land values such as they are today and the potential appreciation of real estate assets, right, based upon the quality of a geography is a calculation, you know, a simple algorithm based upon historical data that, that we run a lot, you know, at, at FutureMap with Climate Alpha, we focus a lot on exactly some of these fundamental mathematical kinds of uh, measurements that are, you know, can be can be factored fairly straightforwardly. I don't see enough embrace of that as a kind of straightforward um, nuts and bolts, you know, arithmetical approach to saying this is where we got to invest more more resources. Um, and again, create the demand, right? Actually go and create the demand in a way, sort of like in the Steve Jobs sense of you didn't know you wanted an iPhone until I, you know, invented the iPhone, right? You didn't know you wanted to live in a climate oasis zone and get out of overpriced and ecologically risky, um, you know, coastal areas until I gave you the keys to a place where you're going to be better off, right? The second part of it is make sure that, and again, this is environmental and ethical and a good business case and technologically innovative all at the same time, make sure that you are designing these sustainable habitats. And of course, hats off to you guys at Fifth Wall because you are the ones who are driving that agenda and putting the money in the right places. Um, but imagine that at a like much, much, much larger scale. As you know very well, we're talking about a $40 trillion industry in the United States and a couple of hundred trillion uh, globally. And we're talking about billions of people, not just millions. So it's there's a long, long, long way to go in terms of saying, okay, well, how are we going to do, you know, the uh, the 3D printed housing, and we're going to have it obviously, you know, with recycled materials, and how are we going to do the uh, wastewater, gray water treatment, and the hydro and aquaponics, and the solar power, and all of these other things in in these settlements and communities, and make them potentially even mobile. Like I talk a lot in the book about mobile real estate as an asset class, you know, and mobile infrastructure, and these are obviously not terminologies that the industry is conventionally used to. And yet you kind of have to be when you start to think about the radical climate change scenarios that we've been kind of ignoring, but are literally upon us right now every minute. So that's a technological challenge that should, again, it's a tragic situation that we are in as humanity, but we've got to act fast and, and, and bring all of our you know, knowledge and capability together to design these future habitats and settlements and scale it, not just within the United States, you know, but uh, but but globally. So um, so that's, you know, those are the kinds of things. So the geography, right, the financial models, you know, using the data. And of course, again, the, the, the physical construction um, of sustainable habitats at a large scale, that's a pretty big agenda. And, and you and I know very well that on Monday morning or Tuesday morning um, in a typical real estate company's, you know, kind of, uh, you know, meetings or agenda, that stuff doesn't exactly take up, uh, you know, uh, an hour or two of the conversation and strategies. But that that's the movement, right, that we need to see. You know, it, it reminds me a bit of a conversation I have quite a bit 
with real estate CEOs, which is, you know, when we started Fifth Wall, we went to the real estate industry and we said, look, whether you like it or not, you are being thrust into the world of tech, right? That is just a reality. And you need to have a point of view on tech. You need to have a forward offensive posture around technology and innovation. Mm -hmm. And at that time, that was 2016, the real estate industry reacted in a mixed fashion. Some real estate mm -hmm. owners said, well, no, I do real estate. I don't have to worry about that. I collect my rent. I build my buildings. That's what I do. Um, you know, a lot of those CEOs are actually now gone. And those real estate companies have been, frankly, they performed really poorly. Uh, there were some at the time that took a very offensive posture and, you know, were able to do a lot uh, around innovation and technology and, um, and, and transform their businesses in, in a very technology forward way. The same parallel seems to be happening around climate, meaning we've now gone to the real estate industry again and said, look, you have to have a point of view on climate change. And there's a bunch of components to what that means. But among them is you need to have a point of view on the actual R&D, the actual tech that can impact your assets positively with respect to its energy consumption and its carbon footprint. And if you don't, you're going to be on the wrong side of history. And that requires you to invest. There's, a, there's no two ways around. You can't look at it. You can't talk about it. You've got to be writing checks into it. Absolutely. And a lot of real estate owners have said, well, I'm in the business of building buildings and I, I, I do real estate. And the, the struggle I've had is, is convincing real estate owners that they're no longer in that, whether they like it or not. The earth has shifted underneath their feet. Mm -hmm. And the refrain, the kind of protective veil of I do a simple business, I buy and sell buildings, I finance them, I lease them, I collect rent. It's just no longer true. That's actually not the real estate business anymore. Mm -hmm. And the real estate business is one where you need to be investing and adopting technology with a very kind of aggressive, futuristic view. Right. And similarly, mm -hmm. you need to have a point of view on climate change and climate mitigation and reducing your carbon footprint. And that again requires you to invest. But the net of it is you're forced to do things that are unnatural as a real estate CEO. You've seen change in a lot of industries. How do we, but really the world, how does the world convince the real estate industry that is no longer a sufficient answer to say, I just do real estate. I can't have a point of view on tech. I can't invest in tech. I don't have a point of view on climate change. I can't invest in climate tech. How do we change that? What's the, what's the one or two sentences that real estate CEOs need to hear? Well, I mean, we know that creative destruction, you know, takes care of itself in some ways. And we're seeing that across many industries, basically being caught off guard is not where you want to be. So having your assets, you know, sort of stranded assets, uh, you know, sort of destroyed assets that uh, from, from climate events and not being adequately insured or having had the opportunity to hedge and diversify away from them and not taking them, you know, you're going to be caught on the wrong side of history, as, as you well know. And, and, and the companies have already been been through that. So, you know, it, it's a pity to not take advantage, again, as I said before, the data that's available. But the sort of, it's interesting when you say, you know, how do we convince them? But, you know, we actually operate in this complex uh, system in which there isn't really sufficient, you know, vertical or hierarchical ability to technocratically coerce every industry to comply. We know that that really the, the, the learning curve, the compliance curve, and the stra strategy curve into bringing in all of these factors varies dramatically uh, across automotive or retail or you know, construction, real estate, um, and, and other industries. So I wouldn't say, again, that real estate is necessarily you know, far, far behind others. It really depends on where in the world we are. Again, you, know, you invest in and have uh, as investors 
some of the far-sighted entities from the real estate industry. But you know, if you wanted to point to a country's model and say, well, you know, look at Europe, right? You know, Europe is obviously because it is highly regulated capitalism and regulated uh, to the degree that, of course, American capitalism is just not going to be based upon our political economy and system. But there is a lot to be learned from the European example, where you still have, you know, the, the demand for and the and the pressure to innovate, right, to reduce uh, greenhouse gas emissions, to do more sustainable kinds of, uh, you know, developments and real estate assets and so forth. And a lot of, you know, climate modeling going into, into these things while still being, of course, profitable. So I think that there is a happy medium out there for the US and for other countries. Um, we should also remember that, again, the, the degree to which climate factors or which climate factors. So, you know, the response, for example, in markets, and even psychologically, the sea levels versus droughts versus floods is actually quite different. Um, and so how segments of the industry react based on what they're exposed to is, is different. And the, the, the difference between residential versus commercial uh, versus industrial is also different. Uh, but I can see a very, you know, couple of hops and a straight, you know, sort of pathway for each industry to adapt. For, for residential, it's sort of, look, we know where people are gonna need to live. And the industrial realizes, wait a minute, you know, warehousing and distribution and these things have to be aligned to this. And the commercial is saying, hold on, the culture is shifting with the technology and the climate and more remote work. So we need to redesign assets in that way. You know, so at least, if we give each at that granular level, each company or, 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 or segment or asset class, you know, a clear set of milestones or, or goalposts, you know, a signpost saying, you know, this is where you, what you know has to happen, start to adjust your strategy accordingly. I think that's the right kind of nudging that uh, needs to take place. Barag, this has been just so interesting. And I can tell I want to just continue this dialogue because I think it's such an important conversation. And I think it's one that real estate owners need to pay attention to. Um, and it sounds like your book, Move, is frankly one way to at least instigate uh, some of these thoughts and, and, and questions that, that real estate owners should be asking themselves. And so um, I just wanted to thank you for, you know, for sharing your thoughts and would love to just continue this conversation um, with real estate owners. Oh, we certainly well thanks so much brendan it's great to speak with you great well thank you so much thanks for listening to this episode of building to zero all of these episodes and more are available on our youtube channel to learn more about fifth wall visit our website at www.fifthwall.com